Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Red shirts. No sooner are they introduced than they are killed. The tension rises. There are beads of sweat on Kirk's brow. Now the audience knows the peril is real. Popularised by original series Star Trek, the term red shirts for disposable characters is so well known, John Scalzi wrote a novel of the same name, focusing on what happens when those red shirts aren't nearly as expendable as we might have thought. So these stock characters, or disposable characters, exist in a story solely for the purpose of being disposed of. Kidnapped or killed, something to push the protagonist into action or drive up the sense of tension without having real consequences for our heroes. So when I look at the sort of disposable characters and the kinds of categories that they fall into, I sort of pulled out three main categories. And there are some sort of generally considered like terms for it and then there's like my terms for it so <laughs> the first one I'm gonna say is sacrificial lambs or stuffed into the fridge so this plays out as the only man I have ever loved was brutally murdered in front of my very eyes and I must get revenge sometimes an entire town usually the protagonist's hometown can be a sacrificial lamb as well so number two we have cannon fodder or as I like to call it bantha poodoo Uh, a military game of numbers so you've got you know the british drinking tea and eating scones in their tent while they send the anzacs out to die at gallipoli (coughs) there's nothing wrong with scones my lad (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. what accent was that lucy (laughs) i don't know i just hit my own foot on my computer so (laughs) please do carry on all right so we have number three Uh, And that is raise the stakes. So, uh, oh, you think your favourites are safe? No one is safe. Psych, your favourites are probably safe, unless it's a novel written by George R.R. Martin. So, (laughs) those are like the three main categories of disposable characters as I see them. But let's talk a little bit, just, you know, some examples of of what we're actually talking about here. So does anyone want to kick off? Well, I had red shirts on my list. Um... (laughs) I roll forever. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, reading some of the uh, TV Tropes articles, always excellent TV Tropes. Um, the ones that I picked up on as the most memorable, and the, well, rather the most blatant for me, is um, Batman's parents. Um, yes. Who are just constantly referred to and constant flashbacks and, you know, exist beyond for nothing beyond sort of motivating him. And then the one, the wonderful ones in Austin Powers, um, particularly where Elizabeth Hurley clearly was too expensive for the sequel uh, and therefore became a, um, not a kill bot, uh, sorry, a fembot. And, uh, and just <laughs> got blown up. And I thought that was a, that very silly take on a, a very silly trope. Yeah, but I mean, that that is kind of taking the piss out of the trope, exactly. But yeah, as uh, just like Batman, I would also uh, say Spider-Man as well, because uh, his origin story as well is, is kind of kick-started by the death of his uncle as well. I think one that I felt really, really sad about was um, Irene Adler in Game of Shadows. Apologies if that's a bit of a spoiler for you, but I loved Irene Adler in all the, um, the Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Um, I really liked her in the very first Sherlock Holmes one with Robert Downey Jr. And then she just gets randomly killed off at the beginning of um, the second movie. And it was it was done with style. I thought it was it was really, 
really well done and I thought it was very menacing but given that Sherlock Holmes didn't actually see it and it was just her death that was supposed to motivate him I kind of felt that it was just really a a plot construct and of no point at all and it's such a shame because in those kind of areas you don't have a lot of really strong witty intelligent female characters and Irene Adler was just perfect but there you go. Um, don't you see a lot of those disposable characters in horror movies, like um, Scream, for example? You know, you always get that. I know, like, all of those, you have so many piss takes of them. But, you know, the girl at the beginning, the blonde who's running away from the murderer, you know, like picking up bananas and stuff and falling over. I mean, like, those are just classic disposable characters, aren't they? They're just there to set the scene for, OK, there's a, a murderer on the loose and this is these are the kinds of people he kills. And you never find out very much about them you never really find out their name but they're kind of you know used as more like a set dressing than anything else i mean i agree and if we're talking about just going back to austin powers it reminds me of all the henchman jokes they have where basically the henchman gets killed and then you have a cut to the henchman's family and he's like oh but he was a wonderful stepdad or oh he was going to get married tomorrow and you're right in horror films you never sort of see the background except for you know what the murder victim is so you get the the initial one is certainly very definitely um, it's not cannon fodder. What was your first? oh sacrificial lamb I suppose. Yes. But th- there's just there's no or is it the to raising the stakes? So it's just there, you know. It's it's kind of to show you that something is coming or that the bad guy really is bad. Well, they're not often given names, so they are more like cannon fodder, aren't they? They're just there to set the scene to say that you know these this is a situation that's bad and it could happen to anybody, and it'll be really bad if it happens to a main character, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's they're they're even more removed than a sacrificial ant or cannon fodder because they're just they're just not identified at all, and they are mm. just there to set up the modus operandi from which you can um, then guess how and when the murderer is going to kill again. I mean, later on, you get the point where where they had it coming, but I think part of the fun of horror movies is seeing people who are quite obnoxious and have usually done minor things but minor obnoxious things that then end up getting them killed there's not a lot of horror films where you know they really want to make you cry that's not the point of them so they don't help you to empathize with them too much um so horror movies are a very different kind of kind of area when it comes to to killing off characters because i think they go about it in a different way i mean you did raise something um about how they're even less that or they're further removed than like cannon fodder in that you know, and and that struck me as interesting because you know, are we saying that they're even more disposable if they're just there to set up how bad the villain is rather than setting up a motivation for the protagonist? Because that kind of seems like the big differential you were sort of mentioning. Well, yeah, because usually if you think about a horror movie, it it's very possible that the person who dies in the beginning in the opening scenes isn't known to the protagonist until after their death. Mm. Whether it's, you know, a jaded cop who's looking into it or some teenagers who uh, later on hear the legend of or whatever. So there's very, very rarely a link between them. Or if they are, it's sort of an almost an urban myth link or it is, it's not necessarily going to be the sister. Um, I mean, there will be some horror films that, you know, do set that link up. But, you know, the ones that are all coming to mind, they're, they're generally not. So I like I say, it's almost there just as a, a plot construct. Um, and I think, like I say, with horror movies, you kind of get drawn in and the characters are, because they're not on the screen for very long, they tend to be stereotypical just because then you can um, 
empathize with them really quickly you know what you're getting what kind of person they are you can put them in a box you can decide if you like them or not and then you know what's going to come and half of the fun of something like um dead snow for example which is just completely ridiculous and silly or even black sheep another comedy horror yeah Yeah. (laughs) is seeing the characters guessing which ones are going to get it and rooting for the ones that will die as well i think that's another element where it's very different for horror when a lot of the time you might be going oh no no please don't die please don't die whereas in horror you you're deliberately looking for the characters and picking one that you want to die i mean i had a standing joke with the girl that i watch horror movies with um when we first saw The Grudge at the cinema and uh, Bill Pullman comes on um, in the opening minutes and I, I sort of elbowed her and went, oh, Bill Pullman, I love him. And literally the second the words are out of my mouth, he turned around and just committed suicide by falling off a balcony. And ever since then, we've had this joke that all the guys I fancy in all the horror movies all do seem to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, the Bill Pullman one was kind of, it was just so shocking and so perfect because he was literally on for long enough for me to say, I really love Bill Pullman. And then he he was killed off and he came back in sort of flashbacks later. But again, he wasn't really known to the character of Sarah Michelle Gellar later on. You know, and it was a, a sudden, pointless and, well, I suppose a necessary death from the pop from a plot point of view, but not necessarily from empathy or from character motivation or anything like that. It was just there to set up. This is what happens when you fuck with the monster. I mean, one recent uh, sci-fi example, fairly recent. I lose track of time now. <laughs> uh, there's uh, the film Looper, where you have again, it's just uh, old Joe's wife is killed in the beginning, you know, by the rainmaker, and that's kind of what sets him up on his path. And you know, similarly in Alloy of Law, in Brandon Sanderson's like second Mistborn series. Um, that you know the first book opens with wax being like killing his girlfriend and then that's the struggle that he has throughout the book and you see it as a really common thing where it's like oh my wife was killed and now i must go on a big quest for revenge oh this happened and it's always at the beginning of the story and it's always you know someone that's important to them but we don't know yet cough cough gladiator (laughs) yep he likes to say that he's a father to a murdered son and a husband to a murdered wife, and he'll have his vengeance. Yep. <laughs> That's like his, his catchphrase. Is that The disposable characters are built into his actual catchphrase. So that is so totally a trope, yeah. And I know that if my friend Andrew Knight was here um, and I said Braveheart, he would just scream and and thoroughly agree that, you know, that it's all apart from the terrible, terrible historical inaccuracy. Um, again, the girl's death is kind of um, just there for a sort of a, a setup and to give him more motivation. And yeah, she keeps coming back and whatever. But, you know, you never really get to to know her in particular. Um, I was just thinking about the horror movie, horror genre, actually, moving away from the movies and into books. Um, Stephen King is excellent at not having the sacrificial lamb and, and things like that, because I always like the way he introduces each character with a little story and a little anecdote. And when I first started reading it, I was like, this is really weird. Why is he sort of describing this character that maybe appears for like one scene and then is off again? But actually, it's it's kind of the opposite. Is it the opposite of George R. R. Martin? Or I suppose along the same lines that even if the characters get killed, before that he's set something up. He's set them up as a person. He's given you a little anecdote. He's given you a real sense of who they are. And even though you kind of half-baited breath because it's Stephen King and, you know, not a lot of people make it at the end. 
you do really get an idea of who they are and they don't it doesn't feel like their deaths are wasted it doesn't feel like even if the protagonists never know when they get left down a storm drain or something it still meant something to the reader and it, it doesn't feel disposable it feels like a genuine loss well that picks up on um I really like this lost Lenore trope thing that there's to do with disposable characters that you know if it turns out to be someone who is you know, genuinely important to to the protagonist that and they, that they keep thinking of this lost person all the way through, then it lifts them out of the whole disposable character or disposable woman trope and kind of they, they become a, a completely separate trope in their own right. And I think that there's huge numbers of examples of, you know, of that in, in actually in video games as well um, and in, in films and books. Part of the problem is that a lot of these kind of disposable characters, especially the ones sort of used at the beginning of a story to motivate a protagonist, are women. And this is where, you know, the comic book writer Gail Simone, who is fabulous, you know, she documented this problem. And that's sort of, you know, where fridging kind of became a really big deal. It's talking about how these women usually um, are used, well, I'll abused shall we say just for the sake of the male protagonist's journey Mm -hmm. and then of course this is just um brings up rapist character motivation so i can see it's all kind of tied into one thing isn't it it's a problem but you know why is it a problem other than you know okay well lazy for one and surely there are better ways to do motivation for characters surely I guess, first and foremost, it is just lazy and sloppy writing. And it probably wasn't such a problem when novels were first coming out and everything. But now that there are so many of them flooding the market, if everybody does this and all the, you know, initial characters are all disposable, you kind of feel like, oh, just not another one. But I think at the same time, it also it also feels like it's it's breeding an indifference in readers and I know that a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, TV desensitizes war and violence and things like that. It's almost the same within books. I mean, not to the same extent, but you kind of almost just go, oh, well, this character is clearly going to be killed off. And I feel really bad about that kind of going, you know, if you actually thought about this person in real life, they really don't deserve to be killed off. But because you identify them as a disposable character and you go, oh, it's the the teenage girl who's had sex. She's clearly, you know, going to die it's a really bad judgment call to to make and it took me a long time of watching horror movies to actually realize I was even making this judgment call and it's so subtle that you're doing things like uh this woman cheated on her husband so clearly she deserves to die and actually if you met that woman in the street you go no of course why would she you know why why would she deserve to die that's a terrible terrible end for someone um who's made a, a minor crime but that's the problem i think a lot of disposable characters are just lined up and you just accept it and you don't think about it and then if you actually thought about the reality of it you would never think like that on the other hand you could say well that's the whole point of fiction it's supposed to be somewhere where you can um feel like that and feel safe about it and go all these really horrible people they're all meeting their just desserts even if the just desserts are a bit over the top but it's still that sort of sense of of justice and this person has done something bad and something as bad has happened to them which you don't really get in real life you watch the news and the the terrible people in the news all seem to go unpunished but in books at least it works so i don't know i kind of feel on one hand it is pure escapism on the other hand, I think it is also a little bit of desensitization. I 
really agree with your desensitization thing because I think that that ties into what we were saying a few episodes back about uh, gratuitous violence in in films and I think that um, a lot of the Hollywood blockbusters that come out are like so guilty of this that they just um, and it's not just Hollywood actually it's you know we, I was sitting watching the adverts on TV the other night and the the amount of um, noise in them and the amount of like a sensation that you're bombarded with um, it is it does desensitize you after a while um, and I think that that's that's obviously very very dangerous because we get to a point where you will what what value has human life and i feel like that's you know in our media it, it's really important that we we don't lose of of empathy and the things that matter and being able to identify with someone else saying that i don't think um i don't find it that there's you know that you should never ever use a disposable character i think when you are like scene dressing for example i think that they do have a role there i think the stuff that you kind of what you have to look out for is when they become um when that disposable character becomes a certain type of person so they're always young they're always female they're always black they're always a prostitute uh they're always a homeless person um you know when once you start kind of pigeonholing these types of people then you're beginning to 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 sow a greater narrative of um that these people are not worth these people are not worth saving these people will never go on to be fully fledged human beings and characters in their own right so it's okay to kind of get rid of them at the start of the story um so i i think that there's I don't want to rule out saying that disposable characters don't have any use at all. I just think we need to be very careful with uh, the kinds of dis- characters that we're that we're putting on saying that they're disposable. Well, absolutely. I mean, it comes back to the point I was saying that if you saw these people on the street, um, as a normal human being, you wouldn't think that they deserve this kind of fate. But you do identify them in, in novels. You go, like you say, oh, it's the sex worker. It clearly is going to die. And that, I think, really does bleed into your your own life and your own views if you're exposed to it enough. You, you don't necessarily realise that you're making that judgement, but you might catch yourself, you know, thinking it automatically when you watch the, the TV. And then suddenly one day, should you pass a sex worker on the street? Um, you know, it's it's going to be at the back of your mind, even if it doesn't actually directly influence you, you know, or cause any problems or any crimes. You are aware of it at the back of your head because it's just been so ingrained by society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why where media and kind of the creative industries have uh, a moral um, role as such. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm the last person to kind of get on my the high moral horse about it. But I think the, this is really important that we do, um, you know, that we do bear in mind that these tropes do exist. And if you continue to, you know, be fed them on a, on a daily basis, then you're right things are going to kind of find their way in subconsciously. And that's, you know, nobody would would consciously admit to thinking that these people are worth less than other people. But that's it's all on the kind of on a level that you don't um, that you don't see every day. And I think that we're all so we're we're so molded by the society and and the the media that we're consuming um, and 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 what we're fed um, that, you know, the people who are creating this do have um, some obligation to to have a look at problematic areas. And I think disposable characters by, you know, the very title disposable is a problematic area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think particularly we kind of did mention it is uh, especially when you have serial killers where it be in spec fic or just genre fiction, 
you often have that kind of thing where you know um the killer kind of cuts their teeth on homeless people on sex workers because people won't notice they're missing or people won't Mm -hmm. care as much and it's only once they start you know coming into the white middle classes or the uh, you know equivalent that they are seen to be really truly terrible and people start noticing and, and people start taking action and it's a terrible trope to reinforce but also you know, a, a commentary on our society that these people wouldn't necessarily be missed. They wouldn't mm-hmm. be caught out. And something that actually deals with that quite nicely is iZombie, the series, the television series, um, rather than the comic book, um, where the very beginning, you know, they, they build their zombie army with these homeless kids because they're less likely to be missed. And but it, it directly talks to that problem um, as a result, which is it's nice to see that it actually does address the issue. Well, one of the things that I think separates horror from the other speculative fiction areas of fantasy and science fiction is when I've been writing horror and I've wanted to kill someone off, the your options for making it realistic are really quite limited because if you kill a mother in her home in an absolute bloodbath with her child looking on it's going to make the papers people are going to notice it's not the sort of thing that's hushed up whereas it is more believable that if a homeless guy dies in a bloodbath that there will be not some cover-up but that people just won't care so i think as a writer of horror you run the the risk of feeding into those tropes simply because of the society we live in your your authors your readers will kind of go well, he's a, a cis white male and high high society. Of course, there'd be a huge outcry if he was killed in this horrific way and his, I know, head was turned inside out or something like that. Whereas, you say someone on the street or sex workers, it's known that these people die regularly um, in reality and it never really makes the front pages. So that is where a, a serial killer would prey. And in, in reality, that's what they do. Yeah, I mean, it was how Jack the Ripper got started, wasn't it? Exactly. And I mean any number of serial killers that you care to name. Um, However, I think when it comes to science fiction and fantasy, there is really no excuse because your society could be based on anything. Um, The down and outs don't have to be the down and outs that we know. In science fiction, you know, you've got a, a new world with new economics and a new power balance. So it could be completely different people. The people who are on top now could be, you know, the people who are on the bottom in the future because we've had the great revolution and everybody's risen up and now they're the cannon fodder um (laughs) but i think again you again you have this idea of wanting your audience to empathize and if you change too much about your future about your fantasy setting and make it too unrealistic people are just going to say no that's that that would never happen um and that's based on their own experience of reality so i think I think it's almost impossible to work against those tropes in horror unless you can think up something creative or do what an awful lot of horror people do, and myself included, is put it somewhere isolated where you're away from all of society and all of the norms that are established. Uh, I think when it comes to fantasy and science fiction, you've got a bit more leeway, but again, you can't you can't push it too far without readers turning around and going, well, this is completely unfamiliar and completely unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the sort of cannon fodder, foot soldiers, military kind of basically when when we have disposable characters that are basically just numbers, numbers in a battle. I mean, how do you 
write battle scenes with like this epic nature of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying while still making them have an impact on the reader or how like is there any way to even do that without just having a bunch of disposable characters to sort of you know introduce go oh this is jim he has a child and oh now he's dead isn't that really sad (laughs) do you know what i mean like what could we do to kind of limit the disposableness of these foot soldiers uh, I think it's a really difficult question. Um, I th- no, it's it's true. I mean, you, the minute you say, you know, battles, I think of the, you know, I think of Lord of the Rings and those sweeping CGI vistas where the uh, poor, those poor nameless Urukai who are just dug out of the ooze way and sent to fight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about them? Nobody cares uh, anything about them at all. So it's like, you know, but but the, those battle scenes look really cool. And we're meant to, you know, we meant to kind of lens the whole story uh, gravitas that, you know, like if if, um, if Sauron wins, you know, this is a terrible thing. So you like I can see why they're so important, especially in genre, like in fantasy books, especially epic fantasy. You can't really get away without some kind of epic battle in there somewhere. Um so yeah it's a really good point like how do you um how do you convey that sense of loss on a titanic scale um without zooming in on one person which is i can i guess what we kind of do i suppose i've done um and you see it done in in other books and films where you you know you have this um cinematic shot and then you kind of zoom into one person fighting for what they believe in and maybe their reasons for going to war and why it matters to them that they may die in this conflict um but of course they might die and <laughs> what i i kind of struggle with is that you always get that you you know if you say you have a main protagonist they'll always talk to at least one person that you don't really see very much of you don't really know very much of but they at least have a couple of lines of dialogue either you know in a film or in a book and that where they talk to the protagonist and there'll be something about like their hopes and dreams about a life outside of this battle or so on and then you have to see that person die and that is that kind of element of oh but we're trying to show you that yes it happens to people you act you know this protagonist is actually talked to so it might happen to them but really that character was just created for that specific purpose and it you know when you stop and think about it it just feels callous to just create this throwaway person that didn't really Uh, have a reason to exist but is it more callous not to you see what i mean so like yeah i don't know (laughs) to just portray uh, a battle scene with these humans throwing themselves onto spear points and we don't know any of them and they're all nameless and they're all faceless uh, and we're removed from it i don't know whether that's better or if that's worse you know maybe it's better if if all you want to show is the 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 titanic nature of war it's maybe it's not maybe it doesn't work so well if you want to show the moral cost of war or maybe main protagonists etc should be more disposable Maybe maybe more people should be like George R. R. Martin. I don't know. I you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, no, but it's a good argument. You know, maybe we should get a real sense of mm. tension and threat in our stories. But I, I, it makes me think of, um, I remember watching 
all the commentary for Buffy because I'm that much of a nerd. Um, and there's commentary for season seven where Joss Whedon talks about, you know, what to do in the finale because he can't kill the main three. He can't kill Buffy. He can't kill Xander. He can't kill Willow. Like those three have to survive that because that's you know you don't go into a a genre piece like that without knowing that those three survive so basically the only option to make sure that it had enough gravitas was the people who were the the kind of on the the secondary scale you know if we're thinking like concentric circles here we've got like the main three in there and then just on the outside we've got people like Anya and Spike and so on and so the people who were just outside that center were the ones who you know who get it yeah you're on the <laughs> uh, pointy end of a vampire and that's fine <laughs> but it 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 does raise that point you know that that he just felt that he absolutely could not kill the main three and it I don't know I I kind of like it because I'm in sometimes you know life is depressing and I don't want my favorite characters to die but also it's kind of sad if we've set up this expectation that our that protagonists just absolutely cannot die and it takes Mm -hmm. away really any of that tension that we kind of ought to feel Mm. And the the more often you put them in situations where they nearly die, the more we become cynical about that. So we think, oh, well, look, they're just in another situation. and We know that they're going to get out of it because they're the main three characters. Before we, we move on to talking about, you know, killing off main characters or whatever, I just wanted to talk about um, war scenes that I'd seen done very well and how they got around sort of the disposable characters. And I must say, I don't know whether it's... No, it's not the fact that I'm a mother because I had the same reaction even before I had kids. But my first example for fantasy is um, Aragorn in um, The Two Towers, which ironically we just rewatched the other night. And there's a bit where obviously you've got the whole thing with um, Legolas going, oh, but they're all going to die in Elvish really helpfully. And then Aragorn shouting, then I shall die with them. Like, yay, way to, you know, really make a point and make them all feel valued. (laughs) <laughs> but the one bit that always got me was when that where Aragorn is sitting there polishing his weapon. Sorry, that's not as rude as it sounds. <laughs> it absolutely um, is. Sharpening his blade, whatever it is he's doing. And there's two kids standing by a fire kind of looking at this their swords and they focus on one in particular. And Aragorn has this little kind of interaction with him. And he sort of says it's a good sword. And, and the little kid says... Um, you know, well, are we all going to die? And, you know, good job on Vicky Mortensen that he has the expressive range for you instantly to see the answer on his face and then see him covering it up and, you know, swinging the sword around and going, it's a good sword. This is a good sword to have with you. And not actually answering the kid's question and not giving him any kind of reassurance. And crucially, there is... um. There's a bit right at the beginning of the Two Towers film where two kids escape a, a village and it's like, oh, where's our mother gone when they arrive at um, uh, when they arrive at Edoras? And then later on you see them being reunited with, your, with their mother so you know it's all fine and that's okay. But you never see these two kids again. And for me, 
you didn't see the character die it wasn't gratuitous it was just a small little bit and yet you know you you watch it and you wonder what what kind of did happen to them and there was something similar um from the science fiction point of view with Battlestar Galactica um the reboot I think it was in the very first episode or maybe the second episode and they had um Rosalind who was doing a tour of the ships and everything and she stops on the, the most um uh, luxurious ship and talks to a little girl in the um in this fabulous garden center that they've got and and you know she's chatting oh, yes yeah yeah wanders off and then the um the silence turn up and they're like well only um only the ships with ftl drives can jump and someone leans down and whispers in the president's ear i just thought you'd like to know the ship that little girl was on doesn't have an ftl drive and you just it brings the cost of it all really sort of, you know, c- coming down on poor Roslyn and like not just this one kid, but everybody on that ship. And then at the end, when all the other ships are uh, sort of um, jumping away, you see this little girl and it's a, a beautiful poignant shot where the little girl's, you know, playing with a dolly and behind her through the, the windows of the ship, you can see the missile coming towards them. You don't see it explode. You don't see lots of dead bodies or anything. It just cuts away from this little girl completely oblivious that, you know, careening towards it is is terrible death. And I think if you're going to have a, a big war scene, picking someone who doesn't understand and necessarily doesn't, you know, have the really comprehend what's going on, but you do, I think you feel more pity for them because it's it's not like, you know, they're charging into battle and going, ah, I'm being shot down like they were in the old war films. It's, it's so much more poignant. I think you definitely get that with kids um, in particular. That particular scene that you're talking about, I think has extra merit, if you can say that, uh, because it it doesn't necessarily force Rosalind into action, but it certainly makes her and the viewer question the morality of that choice, because it, obviously it's the only course of action, but at the same time, you are kind of doing, you know, it's the greatest good for the greatest number or basically the only survival option because you can stay in all die or leave loads of people behind but a few of you can survive so it's kind of it also have that has that poignancy because it's yes it's kind of a disposable character coming in to to show that but at the same time it's not about prompting that protagonist on a journey it's just it's actually about examining that as an issue does that am i making sense (laughs) yeah it is it rather than prompting the protagonist it is showing the cost of the protagonist's decision because aragorn is the one who goes we must ride out we must defend and rosalind is the one who makes the final choice but having this one character who ultimately dies as a result of your decision focuses more on the morality rather than on the gory details that you maybe say get in starship troopers with my oh the worst the worst death ever, which is um, Diz or whatever she's called, who dies and her her party where Sir Johnny is, it's okay, at least I got to have you. And I'm like, oh my God, worst death and character ever. And it, it's just so pointless. And it's clearly that was the whole aim of the film was just that she could get laid and, you know, make Johnny um, more, you know, butch and, and more sad. Oh, it was just awful. But yeah, so in comparison to that travesty, um, it really focuses on, you know, the emotional cost of war. And I think that is perhaps a way around because they're not disposable. 
they're not just there to be blown up or, or whatever. They're not there to provide motivation. They're provide they're there to provide consequences and thoughtfulness. Okay, so I've got a question for you. Do you think Cedric Diggory is a disposable character? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Megan, you answered first. You go first. Well, he's, I mean, maybe just because I found him so utterly boring. There's just nothing to him. Really, isn't he? He's the one who is set up to be the fantastic character. He's the one who everybody loves and everybody cheers him on. You've got harry potter who's the pariah because he put his name in although we all know he didn't but you know he's he is the the contrast to potter um and potter it we all know is the ultimate hero but in a weird way he can't be the hero all the way through and diggory kind of provides that he's just a counterpoint to potter and then at the end he dies and his only (sighs) the only point of the death really is to motivate everybody else to see that Voldemort has returned and nobody was paying attention to Harry Potter or Dumbledore or anybody who was saying it. It's like, no, we require the death of a young and attractive, you know, child who is going to, to actually motivate us to do anything. Ah, but they don't. It doesn't though. If you remember, they keep on denying Voldemort's return all the way through the order of the Phoenix. So actually perhaps even that doesn't motivate people to believe that he's returned. Mm. But it is the first step towards it, though, and it, it convinces all the kids because they are living with it. It is what the children have to kind of go through and everybody remembers Cedric Diggory the next year. So, yes, in the grand scheme of things in the world, they still go on believing Voldemort isn't there, but it changes the tone for the whole school. I come down on disposable character because he isn't fleshed out. He doesn't feel like a fully realised character and you can see from sort of the start the signs that this this character is being introduced in the fourth book precisely so that he can die at the end. Oh, he's not introduced in the fourth book, though, is he? Because he does appear briefly in... Um... Does he? I'm no. Not, I don't no. read enough. I should... I'm not sure. I think... I should reread it then, clearly. <laughs> no, do you know what? He possibly is mentioned, but I, I think um, I'm remembering the very start of the fourth book where they take the port key and that's when they meet him. So actually, and that's still in that he dies at the end of that book. So yeah, I, you do have, I think your argument does hold some weight there. Let's... I mean, as a, sorry, just as a, as a uh, contrast, uh, I mean, you could say, well, we could discuss Dobby, you know, on the other hand. No, I, I would say that he's not a disposable character because he has a, a whole narrative arc that he's introduced very early on. And he had an entire, um, you know, his he was kind of working against Harry in the, in the beginning and Harry wins him over and then he kind of goes goes on and he has a second life uh, and then he doesn't actually die until till very very late in in the kind of the narrative so that is an example of of a character who is just simply killed because it happens because people die mm. you know in in stories and people die as a result of other people's actions yeah. so i think that would be a good example to show that you know this is not a disposable character this is simply somebody who has reached the end of their narrative life <laughs> Yeah, and I would say, again, that comes down to Dobby, for whatever reason, is a much more fully realised character than Cedric Diggory. Ooh, Cedric. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Take Burn. through the <laughs> Okay, let's, let's talk about love interests and go back to Charlotte's little mention of Starship Troopers. 
Because this is something, you know, we kind of touched on how it's, you know, the women often, you know, the girlfriends or the partners or whatever being killed in the beginning to send someone on a path of revenge or whatever. But often when that happens, you then have, you know, it's kind of like the protagonist has to get over their sadness to then get together with the new love interest that's the crucial one to the the whole of the story as it goes on um so that's like one kind of irritating part of this this trope but then the other one you kind of see is like the the sequel issue of you know you like that romantic tension and so on or if it's in hollywood you know maybe they just wanted a new actress or that the previous one didn't want to come back but you have the issue of oh suddenly this person was really important in the first installment and then oh suddenly they they die right at the beginning so that we can have this the next romantic piece or, or prompt the protagonist to go out on another journey and so on and so forth. Thoughts? Well, like in the way that Austin Powers sends up. Yes, with, exactly. Yeah, that's it's very, yeah. No, I, I just think, and then if, I thought, you know, the third element to that is the, the Lost Lenore trope where they, you know, you have to admit that, okay, they died at the beginning, but they have some narrative impact, you know, later on uh, in the story, which is, I thought, another interesting, um, you know, they, they work together. You think, well, maybe the Lost and Order trope is not great either because obviously they're dead. Um, but, you know, they at least have some kind of afterlife, as it were. I'm really struggling to think of anything positive to say about this yeah. or to think of any good examples. I mean, it is used so often and it's almost it's you just have to kind of brush over it you expect it to come it happens you go oh fair enough you know and and whatever and I think obviously the problem is it's um pretty much always a girl dying for a guy's motivation um I can't think of a lot of times when you find it the other way around where you sort of have opening scenes or opening episodes where um you know someone is disposed i mean the i suppose the opposite to it is um something like sex in the city which i know they don't die but all of carrie's boyfriends um and sam's boyfriend and all of them end up disappearing off somewhere and i think possibly to a certain extent in buffy as well she kind of chews through the boyfriends quite a bit because like you say you've got to maintain that tension once the characters have actually gotten together, it's no longer a love interest, it's a relationship. And there's a lot more tension in a love interest than there is in relationships. The best way is just to to kill them off. So for long-running series, that's obviously going to be a problem. Mm. Um, and I think it's handled better in series than it is in films where you've kind of got to get rid of them quickly. Or like you said, you know, you can't get the actress back for the, the sequel or something like that. But, I mean, it's just it's so dull it's so obvious i can see why it's needed from a writer's point of view but just it's a trope i'm so bored with to be honest i mean i know i called out sanderson's uh second mistborn series as like a bad example of having the disposable character at the beginning but the the first mistborn series with vin that actually um just as an example of having a relationship you know where the first one is like you know will they or won't they romantic tension and then in the second and third books they're just together in a relationship and then there's still plenty of tension going on around them 
and that you know it's it's about how like you actually even have a relationship when you know the world is ending and all that kind of stuff so there's still plenty to keep going with the tension so i you know i would somewhat disagree in the sense that uh, you know it's too difficult i'd say it's harder sure to keep that tension there but i do think maybe we cut people a bit slack bit of slack if we're saying that oh it's we can see why you'd need to do that whereas you know you can do it it's just a little bit harder I think if we're looking at sexual tension being maintained for a decent amount of time, I've got to give a shout out to the 1960s series of um, The Avengers with Steed and Mrs. Peel, where it was just constantly low level sexual tension, flirting innuendos in sort of 1960 style. And there was no killing off. There was no ramping it up. It was just every episode they had the same relationship. And it was like clearly you got the impression the two characters off screen had come to the decision that flirting was all they were going to do, but they were quite happy to do it and carry on with it. And that was fine. Um, and I, I've never seen it done as well. Like I say, in Buffy, you tend to get the sense you're mounting and mounting and mounting, and then you have to kill them off. We have to send them away. You have to make them addicted to vampire blood, something like that. Um, and I'm sorry, but just... obviously the best Buffy boyfriend is Spike. But anyway, carry on. Well, I didn't like the way they took the Spike relationship, though. It was a bit rapey and a bit violent. No, it was um, like love hate full of angst. No, no, too much angst. Spike. <laughs> Spike is the best. I, <laughs> I can see this is gonna be another thing that we all disagree on. <laughs> anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, but I mean that that was just my point. That's the only time I've seen it done well. And I appreciate that um for, again, from a writer's point of view, to keep people interested, you've got to give them a little bit more each time. Hmm. Um again with the X Files, I suppose that was quite well done, but then went really weird and freaky anyway, and now don't they have a kid or something like that? Um so it's just I I just almost feel like that's that's the worst of my my tropes. <laughs> So if we are doing sort of, say we're going to create a spec fic story with a large ensemble cast, how do we manage to keep the tension up, you know, with our sort of main characters without obviously marking either some of them as kind of the periphery, the Anya Spike kind of ones that we are kind of important, but not important enough to keep alive, or, you know, just having people come in that are obviously going to be the disposable characters you know how do we keep that tension up how do we make better choices or or how do we just avoid this trope i guess by taking a leaf out of george r R. martin's book (laughs) keep them on their toes you know like nobody I, i can't see how anyone was not genuinely shocked that ned stark actually died i mean like yeah he had his head on the block i mean we all thought you know, even when you know when you hear the axe thud, I was like, "Oh, the axe is just thudded into some wood. It's fine." Oh my <laughs> god, it's not fine. <laughs> like you, you, we're so in, this stuff is so ingrained. Like these, these the, the honourable man is honourable, and he will save the day, and he'll, you know, and like we're so, um, we we think we know who are the goodies and the baddies, and this is so deeply ingrained that when something like that happens, um, it's it's shocking. And, uh, and and brilliant at the same time, because you think... So I think that the, the key is, you know, obviously ensemble cards are... Ensemble casts are really, really popular. I think it's great to have loads of characters. Um, I, I think it's... The most important thing is to keep all of those characters interesting. Um, otherwise, 
when you do start killing them off and you do invariably have to, otherwise the cast just becomes out of control, <coughs> cough, cough, wheel of time, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to invest enough um you have to invest enough time in kind of basically making them all into um, protagonists in a way. Like, and I, I think something like Game of Thrones, at least the, the television series, I think they do that quite well. I think you, you feel quite attached to a large um, group of people, which you don't generally get in, in smaller, in, in novels, uh, particularly novels, because it's quite hard to do, um, especially in one contained book. I know through a series, it, it's possibly easier to do that. But I, I feel like, um, you know, to make them all have their own storyline and their own trajectory, um, it kind of makes you, and, and then and then kind of setting up kind of setting up a situation where you know you know that one of the protagonists can die at any moment um i think that's the way forward really i think the kind of game of thrones model works very well to keep uh you know to keep a reader on their toes and to to make us genuinely care about characters who live or die so you know if one of them does die very suddenly we can't just shrug it off and be like oh well they didn't really matter very much anyway i think um the two examples I probably use here would be going back to Stephen King, which I've already mentioned, where all the characters, even the teeniest, tiniest little introductions that only appear once, have their own little backstories. And I think doing it that way means that everyone has an equal backstory and equal importance and an equal build up to everybody else so yeah okay a minor character might die but you still feel like you've really understood them because you had a snippet from their life about when they were growing up or or anything at all and it just it makes them more human so I guess the one way to do it is to make sure that even if you've got a large ensemble cast with a lot of major characters that even the minor ones are given their their on-screen time and I think the one that does this brilliantly never mind George R. R. Martin is The Walking Dead now I I would love to say I've read the comic books, but I'm afraid I just do not have that amount of cash to be able to afford them all. But the the TV series is just, it's just unbelievable. And as Lucy was saying, because you've got more time to devote to it, you can, you know, make more of it and build the characters up. And I think what The Walking Dead does really, really well is it the characters start off as a particular type a particular personality and they are changed by their surroundings and I think the perfect one is Carol um and she is she starts off as like this beaten housewife and by the end she's one of the most kick-ass hunters you have ever seen but in between she goes through some amazing stuff and some terrible awful morality lessons and I don't remember crying at anything as much as I cried at uh, an episode of The Walking Dead. And if I just say it was Carol and the girls, then those who've watched it will know exactly what I'm talking about. And those who haven't watched it, hopefully there's no spoilers. But it got to the point where I actually had to rewind and watch it because I was so shocked at what had just happened. I genuinely couldn't believe that this had happened because all the characters were built up and okay, there were some minor characters that had been introduced in the last series, but I genuinely didn't think anybody was going to die. And I was just, the way it was done and the way they'd built up the characters, and it was just, I want to say perfect. It was perfect writing, it was perfect acting, perfect directing, because it was so brutal and so 
alarming to people watching it, or it was to me anyway. And I think there's been a lot of that within The Walking Dead. You have characters who are in the middle of a grand speech and suddenly get shot. Or, you know, you have people that you are sure is the absolute saviour and it's exactly what this group needs. And then suddenly they die. But also somebody else will die at the same time that you didn't expect. So even though you saw one death coming, the combined two deaths is like, my God, what is all this? And, you know, you might expect one person to die and then suddenly they pull through, but somebody else gets got by a zombie. It is just, it's such a roller coaster ride. And all the characters are disposable. And I suppose there's a few that you think, well, they probably won't die. But even then, you're not sure because they've changed so much. And all of them have done reprehensible acts at some point because of the situations they find themselves in. So going back a step to what we were talking about, you know, people who've committed crimes deserve to die. Well, pretty much everybody in The Walking Dead is is guilty of something. Um, And they could all die at any moment. So I think that is a really good example of how to make all of your characters disposable and yet at the same time none of them have the fallacy of a disposable character okay and i'm going to uh give some examples that i've seen which could potentially be disposable characters but i found worked in ways that they then kind of not i'm not sure if it's inverted or at least it's just that those characters are then managed to they they flesh them out enough and they come back enough that they kind of um, avoid the disposable character issue. And what I noticed in the examples that I thought of being um, the fifth season by N.K. Jemison, uh, Claire North's eighty four K, the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson, is when these characters okay, that you can see that the setups, if they do occur right at the beginning of the book or sort of just at least early on, yes, these deaths or tragic things happening prompt the character into action. They then tell the story in a non-linear fashion and go back and give us actual sort of, you know, screen time as such where you develop that relationship and that person, you then see why that was so important to the the character and why maybe this, you know, it just, you get the why, you get the motivation, you understand that that was a real character and then it, it plays out across. So even if they did really, you know, die in a linear sense at the beginning, they're all the way through the story because of the non-linear telling of the story, which I think works quite nicely. And you think it doesn't drain tension by already knowing that they're dead? Not in these ones. I mean, I can see that that might, um, but the way that these ones were all done, uh, you know, you're getting the flashbacks and you're getting, um, like, 84K is is kind of disorienting in its use of non-linear time. And so sometimes it takes the reader a little bit of time to catch up and you go, wait, what? what's happening? Oh, okay. And that kind of keeps you on your toes. But also it's you still want to know what's going to happen. But you want – it's kind of set up in the way that you want to know what's going to happen with the protagonist moving forward. But, okay, you're going to indulge in a little bit of nostalgia and you want to understand why that was important to them in the first place. I think it worked anyway. Nonlinear narrative is a really good example of, you know, of, of how it could work. Yeah. You know, to avoid 
disposable characters. I think the the other thing that was quite nice, say in like the fifth season, was that while um, you know the the opening, you have Essen's son is is killed and she sort of goes off on this journey as a result. But her going off on that journey isn't solely about kind of revenge. It's also about saving her other child that's been kidnapped at the same time. It's also about the catastrophic things that are happening. And then what ends, it kind of ends up, the bulk of the narrative of that book ends up being more about how she came to that place in the first place. So it's almost like the the kind of the disposable sacrificial lamb at the beginning of the novel is actually more like the end point rather than the beginning, which is an interesting kind of twist on it as well. Which, which works really well. And the other one that I wanted to mention was just a way of how, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the trope of the woman dies or is kidnapped or something at the beginning to launch the, another act, uh, character interaction. Uh, I'm going to say her name wrong and I apologize. Uh, Lauren Tafoe, she wrote Implanted, which is a sci-fi novel and kind of the, it's actually told from the, the female character's perspective and she's the one who gets kidnapped in the beginning and that sets her on her journey, which I thought was a nice kind of twist in it where you get, you know, it's actually the character who's kind of having the thing that's generally considered as the disposable action at the beginning to launch off on usually a male's quest. Uh, she's launched on her own quest, which is a really nice take on it. No, we need more books like that. Where, you know, I like to be surprised, don't you? It's great. And you turn the page and you're like, I really didn't see that coming. That was really unusual. Yeah, it's great. Well, along those lines, um, you probably enjoy Tim Levin's The Hunt, which has a guy uh, who has is out for a run, comes back, finds that his family's been kidnapped and he now has to take part in a very brutal game or else his family will be killed. Um, and if he survives, by the way, his family will also be killed and so on. Um, but what is... There's not much incentive. It's kind of like um, the Hunger Games. So the idea is he's got to sacrifice himself, um, allowing people to chase him down and be part of this this brutal game. But the, the nice bit is that actually someone who comes to help him is a woman who had the same thing done to her. She... Um, she had been kidnapped um she played the game and she won and then they killed her family and now she's out for revenge and half the story is told from her point of view uh, and the other half is told from this guy who is pretty bumbling and whatever and the woman is pretty kick-ass and i just thought it was it was kind of nice that yes okay you had the disposable family who do still manage to have some agency of their own which is again credit to Levin there um but you know the one person who actually helps him out is someone that's happened to before who is who is female and okay you've got the whole kind of like oh kill my family whatever but I just thought it was still a nice twist and and a kind of good way around it to make sure it was a nice balancing of the the sexes and the characters so when it comes to disposable characters if you're writing the story, maybe stop and try to think, who am I killing off? Why am I killing them off? Should they really fall into these categories? And is there a way that I can make them more important, more interesting, more well-rounded as a character? It's really just about stopping and thinking about what you're doing rather than falling into lazy habits or cliches. But at the end of the day, we kind of probably need at least a few disposable characters. 
I, I, I totally think we do. And you know what I thought you were going to say? I thought you were going to say, you know, do they really need to fall into the acid? <laughs> and you were like, fall into the categories. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that didn't go. I thought it was going to go. Do they need to fall into the acid? Probably. Do they need to do a Wilhelm scream? You betcha. (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. This has been Breaking the Glass Slipper. Thank you for listening. Don't fall into the acid.